Join me in standing out of honor for Christ's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, it is always helpful to have one in front of you and ready to peer into as we study God's Word together. So I invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you and you'll find this morning's text on page 877. It was just about 13 months ago that we began our long series through Luke's Gospel, and we are now right about 75% of the way through. So there's only a few months left, and we're coming rapidly to the end of chapter 18. Where we left off last week was Jesus giving two parables for our attention. The first related to prayerful persistence, and the second related to humble dependence. And if you look at verse 14 of Luke 18... You'll see immediately where we left off is Jesus speaking about those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so consider as we read this morning's text, verse 15 through 34, how the instances and illustrations of those truths are present before our very minds and hearts this morning, that the proud will be humbled and that the humbled will be exalted. So let me go ahead and read our text and then I'll pray for God to bless our study of his word, and then we will begin. So let us hear now, for God is speaking to us through his Son and by his Spirit. Now they were even bringing infants to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And He said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive Many times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers, 
and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we come to you. We come to your word this morning praying that you would give us the faith of a child. We would recognize our weakness, our helplessness, and our utter dependence upon your Son. So let us grow in him, we pray, that you would teach our minds the truth that we do not know, that you would stir in our hearts the love that we do not have, that we might glorify you. Help me to preach, as your word says I must, with clarity, with courage, knowing that this might be the last sermon that I ever preach. This might be the last message any of us ever hear. So speak to us that we might earnestly follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let's put some money in a pot, he said, to guess who's going to be the last one out of the green room tomorrow night. So said a quarterback from the University of California the night before the 2005 NFL draft by the name of Aaron Rodgers. About 24 hours later, he was saying to the media, it's not nearly as funny when you're the last one out of the green room. Because if you know anything about Aaron Rodgers' story, you know what ESPN has called possibly the most awkward moment in the history of the National Football League. As this quarterback from California, chosen by many to be the first pick of the draft, when the first pick came up, found out San Francisco 49ers had passed him over. And he falls all the way to the 24th pick of the draft. And so with each passing pick, passing him by, the cameras are zooming in on his face, recognizing that he's thoroughly disappointed, frustrated, altogether stunned by what is happening to him. And by the time he is actually chosen, the janitors and staff there at the convention center are picking up tables and chairs around him because no one else belonged in the green room for that long. But if you know anything about his career, it's worked out okay. He's won a Super Bowl. He has won multiple Most Valuable Player awards. It's true, if you know anything about sports, that drafts don't always go according to plan. And what we're seeing as Christ continues to inaugurate God's kingdom in the Gospel of Luke, that he is calling disciples unto himself. And he tends to call those to himself that others overlook. He tends to not call to himself those that people would assume are shoe-ins for the kingdom of God. And so what we find in our text this morning is that happening. As he calls children to himself, little souls that no one wants to bother with. And he takes this rich ruler that surely would be a shoe into the kingdom and says, no, you are actually far from it. So it's once again this theme in Luke that we've seen over and over that Christ's kingdom welcomes those that the world despises. Christ's kingdom is for those who are forgotten and forsaken. And in the midst of that theme, what we do find is yet another theme that is true in Luke's gospel that I want to bring to our attention in a few ways this morning is the truth that Christ's kingdom calls us to radical surrender. That Christ makes a demand on his people. He requires radical surrender from anyone who would come and follow him. So what we find threading its way through our three scenes this morning is the centrality of faith in following Jesus Christ because faith, of course, is the very nature of forsaking everything and trusting in Christ alone. It's a text that again tells us that it's not what our hands have done that can make us right with God. It's not anything that our life has won 
that will cause the door to the kingdom of heaven to open unto us. He requires that we surrender everything as we follow him. And so there's three simple scenes that we have in our 20 verses this morning. And we're going to see three things about faith. First, faith receives the kingdom. Second, faith receives eternal life. And thirdly, faith receives Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God shows up five different times in our text, and he means for us to know once again what life as his kingdom citizens, as his kingdom disciples, looks like. And the first thing he wants to teach us is faith receives the kingdom. So before we dive into that, though, I want to give you a special uh, marker of attention, children, because if you ever wanted to know what Jesus thinks about you, this is the greatest text to which you can turn. What does Jesus think about little children, even infants? It's also a text that speaks to us in powerful ways of warning for those of us who are wealthy, which by any measurable standard in history, every single one of us is, as Jesus will soon deliver what one commentator calls a thunderbolt dictum against wealth. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you're simply yet earnestly asking a question of spiritual significance. How can I know that I can be saved? So it's a text for all of us. And may God give us ears to hear as we first notice faith receives the kingdom. Look at the beginning of verse 15. Now they, that being the disciples, or I'm sorry, the crowds, were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. The reason they're bringing infants to Jesus, according to Matthew's gospel, is that the parents of these children want Jesus, this master teacher, this great religious leader, to bless them. It's something we really don't do that much in our culture anymore. I'm not even so sure in the West that we've really ever done it in the way they do it in the East. I remember years ago I was in India for a few weeks preaching and teaching. And after the first night where we were preaching in this village church, After the amen was said and the service was, we thought, going to be dismissed, the entire room came forward uh, to those of us that were there on the trip. And I remember looking into the eyes of my translator and saying, what do they want? Uh, And he says, they want a prayer of blessing. I'm looking at hundreds in this room. And I said, you're going to translate every one of these prayers? And he said, no, of course not. The Lord knows uh, what you pray even if it's in English. They're all coming, crowds to Jesus, lifting up their children, lifting up infants, Luke even says, that God would bless them. But you'll notice the disciples aren't eager for this to continue. Verse 15 goes on to say, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. We don't know why they rebuked these parents for bringing their children. Maybe it was because, like most people at this time, they considered young children, infants, to be necessary nuisances. It was only when they got older, when they could contribute to the welfare of the family and society, that they were actually worthy of attention and instruction. Or maybe it was at Jesus's itinerary. They were the guardians of Jesus's schedule. It was so much greater than just blessing little babies. He had people to heal. He had messages to preach. He had exorcisms to perform. But look what Jesus says in verse 16. Jesus called them to him, that being the disciples to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
So what you want to understand, what Jesus is doing in verse 16 and 17 is giving us two implications about what he understands to be true about the place of children in God's kingdom. And the first is a positive implication to such, to these infants belongs God's kingdom. Now, I do think we could say that this verse, this teaching, has much to say about our own church's practice of paedo-baptism, but I dare not stir you up in that way this morning. What you need to see simply is Jesus says the kingdom belongs to infants. So if you're a kid in here this morning, Jesus is saying in this first implication, to you belongs my kingdom. And this is true in our church's doctrine. It's one of the more peculiar and different things about what we confess to be true, that God makes promises in Christ, in the covenant, to children. We even saw it earlier in our service, didn't we? As parents have come and put their child, as it were, into the arms of the Lord that he would be baptized. And the blessings of the covenant, signified and sealed in baptism, would be given to him. So parents, I wonder if you're like these parents in the text, regularly, earnestly and zealously placing your children in the arms of Jesus Christ. And kids, I hope you're doing the exact same thing, recognizing that Jesus delights to lift you up. You need not grow older to come to Jesus. You need not learn more truth to come to Jesus. You simply come to him with the faith of a child, which is what he says with a negative implication. Notice in verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, shall not enter it. So students, what he's telling you is that to enter his kingdom, you must have the faith of a child, which doesn't mean it's a childish faith that's full of foolishness and immaturity. It's a childlike faith of utter dependence and helplessness that takes God at his word, just like young children tend to take their parents at their word. You know, you can go into any community in our neighborhood and in these areas during the summer and you go to like a neighborhood pool and you'll often find kids jumping in off the ledge into the arms of a parent. And they may be scared, yes, but they know that their parent can catch them. They know that their parent can keep them. They trust their parent. And that same kind of weakness and helplessness, utter faithfulness is what God requires of anyone that they would come and receive his kingdom. So faith receives the kingdom. Secondly, faith receives eternal life. We're told in verse 18, we don't know if it's the same day. Maybe in the crowds pressing in around Jesus, there is this man who's called a ruler. And it's a relatively generic term that just refers to someone from the upper classes of society. And Mark's gospel tells us that this ruler actually comes to Jesus and falls down on his knees before Christ. And so in the ensuing conversation between Jesus and the ruler, what you want to see is that this man is coming with, with genuine sincerity, uh, with genuine interest and urgency regarding a question about eternal matters. And I'm sure that many of you know that uh, so many people tend to use Google now, not merely to search for a term or a name or a business or whatever else enters their mind. It's become something of a master question and answering machine. And so at the end of each year, those people that have the power to discern the algorithms as such tell us that there are certain questions that have overwhelmingly been asked of Google throughout the last 12 months. At the end of 2018, the most asked question of Google was, what's my IP? 
internet provider address. But people often also ask, according to the next few questions, what time is it? How to tie a tie? What song is this? How to lose weight? And then every father frantically asking Google, when is Mother's Day? (laughs) But the question, notice, of this ruler is not so trite and trivial, is it? Earnest, yes, eternally significant. Notice what he asks in verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you just kind of play out the ensuing dialogue that Jesus has with this ruler, it doesn't go the way at least I would think it would go. Because Jesus doesn't say to this ruler, well, there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. It's all of grace. You can't merit entrance into my kingdom. Instead, he concentrates on how the ruler qualifies Jesus' teaching ministry. Notice, as verse 19, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So students, maybe you've come across this text before and wonder how that can be true. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and here he says, I'm not good, or seems to say that. Only God is good. You may come across a professor or a teacher one day. See, Jesus knew he wasn't really God, that only God is good. This can't be anything more than proof that he's not the eternal son of God. Well, you could answer those questions and objections by saying something like Jesus is just exposing the mindless flattery of a rich young ruler, which may be true, but what's probably much better and probably much more true as Jesus is telling the ruler to take his statement to the logical conclusion. The ruler says what? Jesus, you're a good teacher. What does Jesus say? Only God is good. Logical implication? I am the good, eternal Son of God, and you haven't just yet realized it. But he goes on to say things we wouldn't expect. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see that Jesus subsequently rattles off a series of five commandments. Keep all of these things. He says, and you can almost sense this this relief that probably came over the ruler. Because he says, if this is what I have to do to inherit eternal life, well, I've done it. Because you notice, I haven't killed anyone. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I haven't committed adultery. I've loved my parents. If that's it, I've got it. But Jesus says, no, there's actually much more that's required of you. Look at what he says in verse 22. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Uh, One of the greatest missionaries in church history in India is a woman named Amy Carmichael and she would tell the story of one day visiting a Hindu queen And this queen was earnest to know what salvation looked like in Christianity. And she was pressing Amy to explain what were the demands of Christ. What must you do to be saved? And so Amy thought that this Hindu queen wasn't ready enough in terms of her understanding of the Bible to hear these stern words of Jesus Christ. But eventually the Hindu queen prevailed upon Amy and she just brought out her Bible and started reading texts from the Gospels about what Jesus requires from anyone who would come and follow him. And with each passing text, with each passing demand and requirement and a call to surrender, the Hindu queen became much more steely-eyed in her gaze and said, I cannot follow that far. And that's exactly what the ruler says, doesn't he? 
Do you notice verse 23? When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So you need to understand what Jesus is doing here in his use of the law and exposing this man's sinfulness and need of a Savior. He's saying, okay, got these five commandments down. At least you think you do. You haven't yet heard my Sermon on the Mount that's coming out very soon from Jewish publishers in the first century that tells you that actually to look at a wife or a woman with lust in your heart is to commit adultery and to harbor hate and anger in your heart is to commit murder. You've actually broken all these laws you think you've kept multiple times already today. What does he say? There's another commandment. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And like good preachers, what does he do? He pokes at that sin. I know who you really love. It's a God named money. You must give it all away. Surrender it if you are actually going to come and follow me. He's very rich, the text says, so he became very sad. The word for very sad is probably a little bit more picturesque than our English translations. It's uh, engulfed by sorrow. So kids, what you want to think about this ruler is, is he's in a sea of sadness. So great is his love of money. He cannot forgo his money to follow the master because his sadness will swallow up this welcome from Jesus Christ. Come, follow me. And so what we get in the remainder of this middle section is Jesus giving a few different sayings on the nature of wealth and money. The first exposes, number one, the problem of riches. You see what Jesus says in verse 24 and 25? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, kids, I wonder if you've ever seen a camel in real life. Uh, there's a house not far from where I live that has these exotic animals out in their front property, and multiple camels are always out there, and the kids in our car will point out, hey, Daddy, a camel, and that's a big animal. Now think about a little needle. And Jesus is saying, kids, do you think that massive animal, a camel, can get through that needle? He's, of course, saying no. So difficult as it is, for a rich person, a wealthy individual, feel the weight, which is all of us, getting into the kingdom. I increasingly wonder, the older I get and the longer I live here, if this isn't one of the truest tests of whether or not we take God at his word, do we really believe him when he says money is a hindrance to the kingdom? It is a hurdle many will never jump over. Because understand how it works. When you have so much money, what need do you have of God? Why cast yourself on God's care to provide for your needs when your credit card will do it? Why fall upon his saving mercy if your savings account will take care of your ordinary daily needs? Or maybe, because we are indeed provided for so richly by God, we forget that he's the one that provided those very blessings and never actually return thanks to him what he has given unto us. And of course, the good news of the gospel this faith that receives eternal life, is that through Christ Jesus, camels get through the eye of a needle. You know the story of Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia in the book of Acts, wealthy individuals brought into the kingdom. But if you know the fullness of their story, they were always ready to forego their wealth following Jesus Christ. So he points out the problem of riches. Secondly, the possibility of hope. 
Because notice what the crowd cries out in verse 26. Then who can be saved? Because the common view at this time was riches. What was proof that God had already accepted you. Not something that prohibits you from seeing the kingdom. So if the rich people can't get into heaven, is what the crowds are saying, what about the rest of us? But Jesus encourages them, doesn't he? You see how the text continues, verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He comes to bring a kingdom that is for those who are poor and needy, not just in spirit, but actually physically. Those that the world forgets, that cast aside because they aren't worth that much. Christ's kingdom belongs to them. There's a possibility of hope. Thirdly, there's a promise of blessing because notice who pipes up from the disciples in verse 28, none other than Peter. See, we have left our homes and followed you. And these are one of the many times in the Gospels that you just want to hear the tone of what Peter's saying. Is he saying, huh, rich young ruler won't follow you, but we already did it. We left those fishing nets long ago, Jesus. Or maybe he's looking, Jesus, we, we followed you. And affirmation and approval that yes, you have made the right decision. What Jesus gives him is a promise. Notice verse 29 through 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come. It's a promise of blessing. And we're going to go wrong if you use the end of verse 30 as something of a proof text for the prosperity gospel. If we just sow the seed now, more money is going to come this side of heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying because he's already said against those things in his gospel at this point. What he is calling the disciples to remember is that we are to store up treasures in heaven. That giving away everything now is the promise that you will receive everything and more in the life to come as you follow Christ in faith. But keeping everything now for yourself will surely lead to you losing everything and more in the life to come when eternal life is not your promise reward but eternal judgment for your lack of faith, your lack of surrender and following Jesus Christ. So faith receives the kingdom. Faith receives eternal life. Thirdly, faith receives Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31 through 33. He takes the 12 and says to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. I once heard the pastor of one of the most influential churches in America talk about his leadership practices with a staff of hundreds of people. And he said, I have found out that when I'm just starting to get sick of saying something to the staff, they are just hearing it for the first time. And when I'm finally realizing that they are sick of hearing what I'm telling them, it's only then that the congregation is actually beginning to hear what I'm saying. And you wonder if the disciples were kind of dealing with this reality with Jesus. He keeps telling them, if you paid attention in Luke's gospel, what is coming, where he is going, why he's going to Jerusalem, this destiny date with death. They're hearing it, but they're not comprehending it, are they? Look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. We know from later on in Luke's gospel, and particularly the book of Acts, that there came a time when the apostles indeed knew what this meant. 
Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised, and they finally realized all of these prophecies that he had told them so many years before had come true, and they, understand the, they understood the full meaning and significance that the Son of Man was coming to be killed in the place of sinners. And you might be in here today and just wonder about the things of Christianity. Maybe you're struggling to understand the truths of who Jesus says he is and what he came to do. Uh, know that you need not wait like these disciples for years and months to understand the truth. That through the work of the Spirit and by God's Word, you today can understand that this man came to save sinners like you and me. And he was going to do it by going to Jerusalem where he would be what? In accordance with the Scriptures, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed. Yet on the third day he would rise. A turning from your sin, a trusting in him, Faith in Jesus Christ not only receives the kingdom, it not only receives the promise of eternal life, it's nothing less than the sweet union of faith with Jesus, receiving Him, this Savior who has come to save you, united to Christ alone. And this Savior calls you to a salvation that does demand a radical surrender from all of His people, because understand who made the greatest surrender of all. The Lord Jesus Christ, obedient to the point of death on the cross. So John Wesley, the Methodist preacher and evangelist, was on one of his trips over to the United States, and he was with this wealthy estate owner. The estate owner was very prideful and, and proud of his vast amount of possessions, and so he put Wesley on horseback and just had him tour around his estate over the course of many hours in the day, and then later on he sat Wesley down with a gleam in his eye, he said at dinner, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? And Wesley said, well, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving it all behind to follow Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus comes with salvation that is full and free, but it's not removed from demands of what he calls. Because understand how this last part of our text relates to what came before. Jesus said in verse 22 to the rich ruler, come follow me. And then in verse 30, he said that sacrifice and surrendering is the ordinary pathway to eternal life. And we see that modeled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So anyone who would come and follow Jesus, what must he or she do? Take up their cross and surrender that which is keeping them off a full-hearted devotion to the kingdom. Christ's kingdom calls for radical surrender. And as we begin to close, what I want to try to do is see if we can make from this text a few necessary applications to us as a church. Later on in the New Testament, churches are called to have the mind of Christ. And what we get in our text is yet further illustration and instruction about what Christ's kingdom mind looks like. So if we are a people at Redeemer that would have the kingdom mind of Jesus Christ, what might be a couple things that ought to be growing in our lives together? First, what you want to know is that we would grow in Jesus' delight towards children. I wonder, maybe you've wondered the same thing. If so much of our modern church is much more like the disciples than we realized in hindering children from coming to Jesus Christ. That we stand in the way thinking that other things are more necessary and important than ministry to children. A church that has the mind of Christ recognizes that children's ministry isn't just some side service in the church to eventually be graduated from. 
I dare say it actually is the essence of true humility and service in the church. We've already seen in Luke's gospel how Jesus says, some of you want to be important leaders. Well, first show me that you've shown service to children. So Lord, really next month, as is our custom here at Redeemer, the congregation is invited to nominate men who will serve as ruling elders and deacons in this church, shepherds and servants. And as you prayerfully discern which man you might nominate, do ask the question, have they demonstrated regular service and delight in God's covenant children? For to do so is to have the mind of Christ. So, grow in Jesus' delight towards children. Also, obey Jesus' demands of the kingdom. Because we don't want to take what Jesus says in verse 22 and now say that's something to be given to every person who would ever follow after Jesus Christ, that they ought to sell everything in order that they might faithfully follow him. It's certainly possible, isn't it? We have to grant that maybe he's doing that with someone in the room today. But the old men commenting on this text used to say that this is a great example how Jesus wants to always expose our darling sins. That one part of idolatry or iniquity that we are keeping for ourselves, hiding in secret, nourishing and cherishing. And Jesus, through his word and spirit, wants to begin to poke, doesn't he? That's, that belongs to me, too. So maybe it's not money. Maybe it's this sinful, this idolatrous pursuit of power, of possessions, of place and prominence, of pleasure. Students, maybe it's Jesus telling you to give over a sinful relationship with a significant other that you might come and follow him. Maybe it's even something so simple, dare we say it's true though in our context of our favorite sports team that receives our greatest affection more than the king of the universe. He makes a demand on everyone who follows him. He must surrender all in order that you would receive the kingdom. So see his delight in children, see the demands that he makes in the kingdom, but also we want to understand his devotion to his mission and center our affection on it. Martin Luther once said, if you want to know what authentic ministry looks like, recognize that the cross is the test of all things. Over the last 150 years, many progressive and liberal scholars in Scripture have looked at Jesus' ministry and said, hey, he wasn't so much about substitution for sinners, atoning, bloodshed on the cross. He was really just a moral example for humanity, the perfect depiction of morality. But you must understand in Luke's gospel, what does Jesus say his greatest passion actually is? He is going with his face set like a flint in stone to Jerusalem that he might die in the place of sinners. That was his greatest passion and devotion, so it makes all the sense in the world why churches with the kingdom mind of Jesus Christ are called to in the rest of the New Testament to focus their mind, attention, their ministry, their action, their prayers, and their being on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because understand what the cross of Jesus Christ is. It's the place not only where God's wrath and love collide in the most beautiful display of grace. It's the story of the richest ruler coming and surrendering all. The king of the universe who sustains creation by the word of his power, laying aside all of his divine rights to take the form of a servant by being obedient unto death on a cross, surrendering his life that you might know 
his kingdom, that you might know eternal life, that you might know him, Jesus Christ himself. Faith receives all those things because of the work of Christ in our place. And so he calls us as his kingdom followers to a radical surrender that even mirrors his own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy to us who so often have, like the disciples, a difficulty in understanding the full majesty and glory of what Christ has done for us, who struggle to lay aside our, our sins that we might follow you. And so we pray by your spirit and your word this morning that you would work within us a faith that truly receives the blessings of Christ a faith that forsakes all and trusts in you alone. Help us, we pray, to do that even as a church body, as we want to glorify you in the fullness of your splendor and beauty. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.